welcome to Straight Talk with Wine Spectator, the podcast from the world's most widely read wine magazine. On Straight Talk, we're bringing the pages of Wine Spectator to life, from the latest vintages of the world's best wines to in-depth interviews with the world's best winemakers. We'll also be answering your questions, covering the latest wine industry news, and much more. So for the first three days, everybody was congratulating. For the next three days, everybody was complaining because they wanted more wine. <laughs> I'm James Molesworth, Senior Editor and Special Projects Director for Wine Spectator. And in this episode of Straight Talk, we're taking a look at the Wine Spectator Top 100 Wines of the Year. Our full Top 100 list is, as always, the cover story for our final issue of the year. Just like last year, we're going to have our esteemed Senior Editor Bruce Sanderson joining us here on the podcast. We'll be recapping the top 10 wines of 2023, including an exclusive clip from the man behind our wine of the year. That's all coming up later. And as this is our year-end look-back episode for 2023, we'll have Senior Editor Mitch Frank with us to go through all the biggest wine industry news stories of the year. And of course, it's not an episode of Straight Talk without a visit to the doctor, Dr. Vinny. To help me get through all that, I have our podcast director, Rob Taylor, joining me. Howdy, Rob. Hi, James. This is it. The season one finale. Yeah, similar to the Stevie Wonder album, Fulfilling This's first finale. We are coming Boy. to the end of a year-long flurry of content creation. It's been a fun ride. We couldn't have done it without you, Rob, of course, as well as our at-large technical consultant, Gabriella, our Napa technical assistant, Elizabeth, all my fellow senior editors who pitched in along the way, and all the fun guests we had in the studio and at large. It's been a busy year. Big thanks to all of them, and to you, and to Marvin. Mm -hmm. But James, before we get into our year-end celebration of the most exciting wines from around the world, I've got to remind our dear listeners that they can find everything we're talking about today, and a whole lot more, including Wine Spectator's full, free, top 100 wines of the year list, at our very easy-to-remember website, winespectator.com. Our Top 100 issue is on newsstands now and includes our annual tasting reports for U.S. sparkling wines, as well as for the wines of Australia. But we're here to count down 10 superstar wines today. And we can't do it without our most senior, senior editor, Bruce Anderson. Welcome back, Bruce. Thanks, guys. Great to be here. I'm not sure senior, senior editor is, <laughs> is a moniker that I want, but uh, here I am. Like a fine wine, Bruce, like a fine wine. Better with age. So, Bruce, you've been overseeing the Top 100 selection process for over a generation now. Uh, you are someone who goes deep on all the data from year to year. Um, but give our listeners a, a quick rundown of how we make this selection out of all the wines that we taste during the course of the year. We look at, first of all, all the outstanding wines, 90 points plus, of which there are typically 5,000 or so, mm -hmm. a little bit more. And we look at uh, four different criteria. We look at quality based on score. Mm -hmm. We look at value based on price. We look at the availability of the wines. And we also look for something we call X factor, which is the backstory. So it's kind of like a sliding scale. If it's a low price wine, there's a lot of cases and maybe a new project. That's something interesting. If it's a more expensive wine, hard to find, there has to be something else to sort of support it. It's it's kind of a, a little jigsaw puzzle. Yeah, I would say that generally if, if wines are more expensive and smaller volumes, then they really have to be exciting to make the list. Gentlemen, shall we move on to the countdown? Let's go. Starting with number 10. Bruce, we've got a New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. Tell us about that. 
Yeah, this is, you know, New Zealand, of course, Sauvignon Blanc is hot. It's a hot category right now. New Zealand uh, is famous for its style of Sauvignon Blanc, very bright, juicy, fruity. And they've been knocking at the door now for a number of years in the top 100. And this is the Grey Wacky. It's uh, an estate that was founded by Kevin Judd in 2009. He's no stranger to New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc, of course. He was the original winemaker at Cloudy Bay. He was there for 25 years. And in fact, way back in 1997, we had the Cloudy Bay Sauvignon Blanc Marlboro in the top 10, and that was made by Kevin Judd. So he's no stranger to the top 10 either. I told you the man goes deep on the data. Gray Wacky Sauvignon Blanc Marlboro 2022 vintage, 95 points, 23 bucks, 10,000 cases. At number nine, we've got a grape very dear to Bruce, a Pinot Noir. Yeah. So I cover Burgundy, Pinot Noir. And uh, this is the Oregon project from the very successful Burgundy house, Maison Louis Jadot. They bought a vineyard, the Resonance Vineyard, in 2013. They have since bought additional vineyards. Uh, and this is their Willamette Valley bottling. So it provides great value. It was 94 points and uh, $40, and there's quite a bit of it, I think about a little over 10,000 cases made. So this is a uh, very uh, unique style of Pinot Noir from Oregon, very spicy, uh, well-structured, and uh, coming from a house with a great track record. And in fact, they tapped their longtime winemaker, Jacques Lardier, to help out with the Oregon project. So I'm not surprised at all that it's a huge success. That's the Resonance Pinot Noir Willamette Valley 2021, 94 points and $40. James, you want to take number eight? The Chateau Pichon Baron, which is a blue chip Poyac bottling from Bordeaux. This is owned by the French insurance company AXA, proving that uh, large corporate ownership does not mean soulless wine. Uh, Christian Seely took over here from the late great Jean-Michel Caz back in 2000. And he, along with longtime winemaker Jean-René Matignon, who wound up retiring in 2022, they really ushered Pichon Baron into the modern age. This is, as I said, no-brainer, classic blue chip Poyac for the seller. This is one of those estates that operates on a first growth level, of which there are now more than a few in Bordeaux. And yet the price remains really fair for this level of quality. It's certainly much less than a first growth Bordeaux, and it's less than a lot of Napa Cabernets at the same quality level. So that's the Chateau Pichon Baron Poyac 2020, 97 points, 165 bucks, and there was just over 12,000 cases made, so you will find it. And Bruce, at number seven, we've got a very familiar name from Tuscany. Yeah, this is the uh, Antonori Chianti Classico, Barchese Antonori Reserva. Um, and of course, you know, the Antonori name is synonymous with quality uh, from Tuscany. And uh, this is all about the vineyard, Tenuta Tignaniello, where the grapes for this wine are sourced. It's also the, the source of the grapes for, for Antonori Super Tuscans, Tignaniello and Salaya. And these have a half a century track record. And, uh, of course, it was it was those super Tuscans that really uh, raised the bar for quality in Tuscany. And one thing about this vineyard is it has great consistency, even in the challenging vintages. And it's also the culmination of, of replanting in the entire Chianti Classico region with better Sangiovese clones. And I would also say that Chianti Classico in general has benefited from warmer vintages, and there's been a real string of fine vintages there since 2015. It's tough to beat a super Tuscan vineyard like Tenianello for excitement. Sure is. That's the Antonori Chianti Classico Marchese Antonori Reserva 2020 at 95 points and $50. James, I'm going to kick it back to you for number six. We're going to hit California with the Dunn Cabernet Sauvignon Howe Mountain 
bottling that was reviewed this past year. You know, Randy Dunn, quick quiz, started making wine in 1975 for... Camus. Camus. Of course, Bruce would know that. Bruce but goes deep. He then went on to, uh, you know, pitch his own tent up on Howl Mountain back in 1979. And at the time, that was definitely out of the box. You know, the valley floor vineyards are flatter. They're easier to farm. They offer more opulent wines. Mountain vineyards are more difficult to farm because of the topography, markedly lower yields, and they have rugged tannins and, and super racy acidity that require long aging. Randy Dunn has tamed that along with his son, Mike Dunn, who does the winemaking now. To say that this family clan has established a very impressive track record for distinctive age-worthy Napa Cab would be putting it mildly. The Dunn Cabernet Sauvignon Howell Mountain Bottling 2019, 96 points. 175 bucks and 3,700 cases made. And for everybody who's been listening to James Harp about mountain cabernets from Napa all season, don't miss the done. Now at number five, we're going back to Italy, Bruce. Yeah, here's uh, something from southern Italy, from Campania. It's the Mastro Berardino Terrazzi Radici Reserva. Mastro Berardino is a, an historical estate whose name is synonymous with Terrazzi. And this wine represents a change in direction beginning around uh, 2010 to shorter macerations in order to achieve a more elegant style. And the 2016 vintage, which is number five, is a perfect example balancing the liveliness and elegance with the structure of the Alianico grape. That's the Mastro Berardino Terrazzi Radici Reserva 2016 95 points, $73, and a little over 800 cases imported. James, we're heading back to California for number four. California, and this time Pinot Noir from Rain, and that's Rain, R-A-E-N. And this is a project from Carlo and Dante Mondavi, if the name sounds familiar. That's because it is. They're Robert Mondavi's grandsons. They spent 10 years looking for uh, Pinot Noir vineyards along the Sonoma coast. When they finally found what they wanted, they put down uh, stakes, and now they've got 10 vintages under their belt. So this is actually the culmination of uh, 20 years' work. And, you know, I got to say, along with Melanie McIntyre, this project is really in the vanguard of this new wave of Sonoma coastal Pinots that's coming out. And these uh, guys at Rain emphasize the sort of lean, brisk, uh, marine-influenced minerality that sets these wines apart. It's a lighter-bodied but very fresh, very persistent, very racy style of Pinot Noir. The Rain Pinot Noir Sonoma Coast Royal St. Robert Cuvée, named for their grandfather, 2021 vintage. 95 points, 70 bucks, just over 2,000 cases made. That is a category to watch very much so, almost as if we might hear from it again. Mm-hmm. But first... First, we go back to Bordeaux. Chateau Lynchbage made another classic in the 2020 vintage. And can I say no-brainer classic blue-chip age-worthy Poyac again in the top 10? <laughs> um, Lunchbags is one of American wine consumers' favorite properties uh, from Bordeaux, and with good reason. The late, great Jean-Michel Caz, who passed away earlier this year, he revitalized the estate and the town of Baj uh, during his run from the 1970s through the early 2000s. His son, Jean Charles, is now in charge, and this vintage was the first one made in their brand-new winery facility. So... With all of that added up, this was one of those all-too-easy picks for the top 10. The Chateau Lynchbage Poyac 2020, 96 points, 137 bucks, and 20,000 cases made. Impressive. Now, maybe uh, we should go back to Sonoma. Might as well. <laughs> I like this ping pong. We've got another Pinot Noir Sonoma Coast uh, bottling coming in at number two, the Occidental uh, bottling. And this is from Steve Kistler, synonymous with the right powerful style of Chardonnay that he made at his eponymous winery. He shifted gears in 2011 to focus on Pinot with this venture. He's joined by his daughter, Catherine, in managing the winery's 65 acres of vineyards located around the town of Occidental, which has become kind of ground zero for this new wave of coastal Pinots from Sonoma. 
Unlike the rain, this is in a slightly richer style, little lusher texture, but still keeps that filigreed minerality that marks these uh, new Sonoma Coast Pinot Noirs. It's a great counterpoint to the rain bottling at number four. The Occidental Pinot Noir West Sonoma Coast Freestone Occidental 2021 Vintage, 94 points, 65 bucks, 4,000 cases made. James, we've reached that moment. We have. We don't have a drum roll, but we do have Bruce, who's even more powerful than a drum roll. And he's going to tell us about the wine of the year. Bruce, what is it? This is the Argiano Brunello de Montalcino 2018. Mm. And this is a great story and an example of what we call the X factor. The style shifted from more modern wines aged in new French oak barriques to a traditional style of Brunello aged in large Slavonian oak casks with new ownership about a decade ago. And uh, CEO Bernardino Sani worked with vineyard manager Francesco Minari, consulting enologist Alberto Antonini, and vineyard consultant Pedro Parra, mapping all the vineyard parcels. Uh, they also completely redid the vinification cellar and the aging cellar. Uh, they got rid of most of the barriques, brought in um, some larger casks, 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 liter casks. And this Brunello is a blend of, of several parcels on the estate. It ages for three and a half years in those larger casks. And then it's bottled and released five years after the vintage. Um, 2018 was a very interesting vintage in Montalcino. It was kind of a throwback uh, talking to guys like Bernardino Sani at Argiano, uh, vintage that reminds them of vintages from the 80s, very expressive wines, very elegant, uh, very floral. Uh, and, you know, now with with the work that they've done in the vineyard, they're, they're farming organically, they're working with more precision. Uh, Sani's put together a great team with, uh, with the vineyard manager, Francesco Minari, and uh, winemaker Roberto Caparossi. And... Uh, Kudos to them. I mean, they really took a lot of risks, uh, took them 10 years and about $10 million of investment, but they really, um, they really had the vision. They stuck with it. And uh, I think now we're seeing the culmination of their work. And a lot of great names that you rattled off there. Alberto Antonini, who's uh, one of the great consultants who goes around the world, but does it quietly. A lot of consumers don't necessarily know his name, but uh, Altos Las Hormigas in Argentina is his main project. But he's in California uh, over in uh, Moon Mountain District and a lot of places in Italy. And Pedro Parra from Chile, who's... Uh, really done some interesting work in terms of geology and analyzing soil types for wine. He's like the original terroir hunter. Uh, I remember meeting him down in Chile a long time ago. So it sounds like a great story. In fact, you were just in Italy right after the, the Wine of the Year announcement, and you stopped in at Argiano, caught up with Bernardino Sani, and tell us what happened there. Well, needless to say, the, he was very excited. <laughs> I mean, Bernardino, a, he's a pretty excitable guy anyway. And, uh, you know, when you give him the, the number one wine of the year, uh, I mean, he was grinning from ear to ear. Um, you know, he was really in his element. He was, I, I was there in 2016 and they're in the middle of all, all of these renovations that they were doing. So he was more than happy to, uh, to show me the finished product. Uh, I mean, I, I just can't say, you know, how thrilled he was with the honor. Let's take a listen. So Bernardino, how did you find out Argiano Brunello di Montalcino was the wine of the year? I started to get a lot of phone calls from friends, uh, from uh, the wine business. Uh, I didn't know anything. I was uh, suspecting something uh, maybe from the phone, from the number of phone calls that I was getting in the morning, but I didn't know anything. 
And then uh, a very close friend of mine sent me the, the, the message and I, I got emotional, of course. And what has happened since? I got no jokes, like uh, a, an average for the following four days of uh, 600 WhatsApp messages a day <laughs> and uh, 300 emails a day from everybody. Friends, uh, family, journalists, importers, uh, customers. Uh, so for the first three days, everybody was congratulating. For the next uh, three days, everybody was complaining uh, because they wanted more wine. <laughs> this was a big effect, big effect. Well, that was a fun clip. Thanks, Bruce, for, for bringing that along and joining us for this year's countdown. I'm guessing you're now off to do your own countdown, the 25 Bruce Wines of Christmas break coming up, perhaps, as you take some time off? Yeah, I think I'll uh, uncork a few good bottles this year. Sounds like a good idea. Bruce, thanks for coming in. And now that we've covered the wines of the year, it's time to recap the wine news of the year, which means it's also time to welcome back senior editor Mitch Frank. Hello, Mitch. Hey, Mitch. Hey, guys. Good to see you. Did you save me any Brunello? The decanter has run dry. <laughs> it's our year-end season finale, and after counting down the top 10 wines of 2023, let's talk about some of the biggest stories of the year. Leading the way there, Mitch, I'd say a few winery purchases made for the year's top headlines. Am I right? Uh, is there anything much bigger than a nine-figure deal? Oof. There were a few of those this year in the wine industry. Uh, with the economy still uncertain, I expected the number of winery sales to be down this year, and overall that was true. But there were still some big names changing hands. In tricky times, what tends to happen is that the bigger, more established companies uh, can snap up some of the other players and strengthen their positions. One of the biggest players of all, of course, is Gallo. They bought Rombauer Vineyards, which gives them a top name in Chardonnay and Sauvignon Blanc, plus 700 acres of vines. And in the same week, they bought Masakan, a boutique Napa brand that has no vineyards, but does have a loyal, younger group of customers. They also bought earlier in the year Han Family, which is a major wine company on the Central Coast that built its name with Pinot Noir. Hmm. That's some noticeable activity, not just for the size of Gallo, Mitch, but for the bet they seem to be placing on white wine going forward with Rombauer and Masakan. Anyone else making that kind of play? Yeah, white wine is attractive right now, especially with Sauvignon Blanc sales still going up. Duckhorn, another successful company, made a major move in white wine, buying Sonoma Coutrere from Brown Foreman for $400 million. Sonoma Coutrere has had big growth selling premium Chardonnay. So obviously they see a lot of benefit in white wines. Hmm. All of these brands are known also for making wines over $20 a bottle. And that's where much of the focus is right now. Treasury Wine Estates, which is trying desperately to sell less value-priced wine and shift more into premium, paid $900 million, plus another potential $100 million in a few years, for Dow Vineyards, another Central Coast company that's rapidly growing with wines at 20 40 and up. All these deals tell us a lot about where the big players see wine going in the next five years. More white wine sales and more trading up by consumers. Big winery sales weren't the only finance stories you reported on this year, right, Mitch? The wine industry felt a few economic woes, too. Yeah, one of the reasons the wine industry saw fewer big deals, Rob, particularly in the first half of the year, is that the winery's two favorite bankers were in major trouble. Silicon Valley Bank faced a panic thanks to their tech sector clients, forcing the FDIC to step in. 
Eventually, First Citizens Bank, which is a bank based in North Carolina that's been growing a lot, took over and SVB's wine division is now running much as it did before. The other major lender to the industry, First Republic, also faced a lot of uncertainty and was purchased by Chase. So for a few nervous weeks there, many winemakers were wondering if their money was secure and also whether they'd be able to get the financing that they use week to week for daily operations. Not a fun place to be. Yeah, those were some some tense weeks back then. And financial woes hit the retail sector as well, right? Taking down one of the industry's most prominent names. Yeah, Sherry Lehman, uh, which has been a respected name since not long after Prohibition. But the Mm. store hadn't been paying its suppliers in recent years. And as that problem grew, the shop eventually couldn't get more wine. People started reporting to us that the shelves were empty. And then they started offering wines that did not appear to be in stock yet. Next up, it failed to renew its liquor license for a few months or pay its power bill. So Sherry Lehman Mm -hmm. shuddered and has yet to reopen, though the owners claim it will. That alone is big news, but there's an even more serious problem. Wine Spectator heard from several former and current employees that rare wines that Sherry Lehman had stored for their customers for many years were being pulled from the company's storage facility. Invoices that we obtained show identical wines being sold to other customers. This matter is under investigation. Mm. Yeah, the the Sherry Lehman situation is a shocker. Basically seems to be a a Ponzi scheme going awry, as they always do. Between major industry lenders and then such a prominent retailer going under, is this potentially signaling a, a difficult 2024 for the wine industry, though, Mitch? Well, folks are feeling pretty uneasy right now. Wine sales are down. And part of this is really just the global whirlwind we've all been through, if you think about it. A pandemic, reopening, inflation, and now a lot of uncertainty about where we're going next. And part of it is that consumers have been drinking more spirits in recent years. They're trying new things. And for a while now, they've been drinking less wine, but better wine. That's why these big players like Gallo are buying brands that sell wines for more than $20 a bottle. I personally believe that these are mixed times, not bad times. Remember how everyone has said that young adults don't drink wine? Several analysts tell me that the number of regular wine drinkers is growing and that much of this is people under 40. They might Mm -hmm. not be drinking as often as baby boomers, but they are drinking wine. They're trying new things. And that's hopeful for the future. Yeah, these things do move in cycles Uh, over the long term. The industry is always trended up, even though there's been ups and downs over time. I agree the sugar high of that excess cash coming out of COVID when people were buying all the champagne they could find, that's over. Uh, And there's probably going to be some choppier waters for a bit. But I bet that folks will still be drinking wine. And one of the reasons I know that uh, is because some people keep stealing it. Um, There's outright theft. Restaurants in Norway and Spain and a wine store in L.A. were all targeted this past year by thieves looking for rare wines. Tell us about, about some of these cases. Yeah, some of them are straight out of the movies. Uh, In the L.A. heist, uh, the thief cut a hole in the ceiling of a wine store and lowered himself into the temperature-controlled cellar. Uh, That suspect, or suspects, is still on the loose. Uh, Sometimes the thieves are caught, though. Uh, A couple was convicted of stealing $1.7 million worth of wines from El Atrio. Basically, they were distracting the, uh, the, the clerk at the hotel next to the restaurant with late room service orders while the accomplice was sneaking in to steal the wines. Uh, That's a grand award-winning restaurant in Spain with one of the most impressive wine collections in the world. 
while the couple was convicted and sentenced to several years in prison, the police haven't been able to locate the wine. Over in France, a group of thieves stole two semi-trucks loaded with more than $600,000 worth of Moet and Chandon from parking lot in Champagne. What they didn't realize is that the trucks had GPS devices that triggered alarms when they left. So the police caught up to them on a busy highway near Paris where there was a hectic chase. One of the truck drivers slowed down and actually jumped from the cab into a car that had pulled alongside. And another thief abandoned his truck in a rest stop. The bubbly was saved, but the thieves got away. And then there's fraud. So authorities in China raided warehouses in Fujian province early this year and uncovered a massive counterfeiting operation. More than 40,000 bottles of falsely labeled wine with an estimated street value, meaning what it could have sold for, of more than $150 million. A lot of faux Penfolds and Lafitte Rothschild was found. Fake Penfolds and Lafitte Rothschild. Wow. It makes me think of Rudy Kaneriawan, who popped up this year as well, Mitch. Give us the update there. The legendary Rudy K. Yeah, Yeah, you knew Rudy was going to show up sooner or later. Uh, He was deported uh, to Indonesia back when he was released from federal prison for fraud and counterfeiting. He had finished his sentence. Uh, And since then, he's been spotted several times in Singapore, where apparently he's even hosting wine tastings. A source sent me a photo of him happily raising a glass in a restaurant. So buyer beware, James. Wow. Wow. Okay. So from the absurd to the serious, though, we also lost some industry titans this year. For me, looking back, I think none bigger than Jean-Michel Caz, the owner of Chateau Lynchbage in Poyac. Not only did he help put Bordeaux on the map wine-wise, but he did it tourism-wise as well. He really was one of the giants of the industry and a kind man. And his book, his memoir is out there and is also worth a good read. Jean-Michel Caz. Yeah, he'll be missed. That's right. And as we've mentioned, there's a great tribute video to Jean-Michel on WineSpectator.com. We lost a few other old world greats this year in Hubert Trimbach of the famed Alsace House. And the iconic Alexandre de Lerseulus, who was the former CEO of ICAM and owner of his family's Chateau de Fargue in Sauternes. Plus the Loire's Jean Bomard and Jackie Blow as well. From California, we said goodbye to Fetzer's longtime president Paul Dolan and Hess Collection founder, art collector and businessman Donald Hess. There was also a third-generation winemaker from the Louis Martini Winery in Napa Valley. He was the president of the Napa Valley Vintners Association, Michael Martini. And we also said goodbye to Michael Benedict, one of the original founders of Santa Barbara's Sanford and Benedict Vineyard. Oregon Pinot Noir pioneer Dick Arath also passed this year, as did star chef Michael Chiarello. So we say farewell to all of them. And Mitch, we also say... Thanks for all of your reporting this past year. It's been a really busy year. What do you got planned for the holidays? Uh, just resting and recovering. Uh, you know, the kids are off from school, so there is no rest. So I don't have to open another Brunello for you? or Oh, yeah, that that definitely. <laughs> I, didn't I mention the kids would be off from school? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> all right, Mitch, thanks again. We will catch up with you in 2024. And now, for the last time this year, Rob, I get to send you to the doctor for your monthly checkup. My annual This is your annual with Dr. Vinny. All right, take it away. See you later. Paging Dr. Vinny. Paging Dr. Vinny. Code Rouge in the podcast studio. Well, folks, it's time for my very last doctor's appointment of the year. Back at the office of Dr. Vinny, Wine Spectator's mysterious and wise advice columnist. Hello, Dr. Vinny. Hey, Rob. 
As you know, we've been talking a lot about Wine Spectator's very exciting Top 100 Wines of the Year today. Shout out to WineSpectator.com, where you'll find the entire list and lots more supporting content, all for free. And, of course, our Wine of the Year is from Italy, the Argiano Brunello 2018. And there were three Italian wines in our top ten, including the Antonori Chianti at number seven, which is also from Tuscany. So I thought today I would ask you, what's the difference between Chianti and Brunello? Right. Good question, Rob. So let's start by taking a step back and reminding people that in some parts of the world, you can tell what a wine is by um, reading the label and seeing the grape and where it's from. But then you get to Europe and things are a little bit more confusing or maybe straightforward, depending on how you look at it. Different. Yeah, different for sure. Yeah. So in Italy, wines are given the name of where they're from, and there is a lot more attached to that. So in both cases, we're talking about Sangiovese being the name of the grape and the wine made from it. But Chianti is defined by meaning the wine is made from 70% Sangiovese and other grapes. It used to include even white wine grapes, but the rules have evolved over time. So now a Chianti can actually be 100% Sangiovese if they want to make it that way. Okay, so 70% Sangiovese minimum to make a Chianti. Right. But then there are the Chianti Classicos, and those have a few more rules, right? Right. So a Chianti Classico is a minimum of 80% Sangiovese and requires a little bit more aging. And those typically cost a little more, right? Yeah, typically cost a little more. And costing a little more than those are usually the Brunellos. <laughs> right. So Chianti is made from Sangiovese. Chianti Classico is made from Sangiovese. And Brunello is also made from Sangiovese, but a little bit uh, different of a percentage. A Brunello is 100% Sangiovese, but it's defined from only coming from in and around the town of Montalcino. So that's only about 5,000 acres under vine compared to Chianti, which has about 30,000 plus acres under vine. So by definition, Brunellos are going to be a little bit rarer. That makes sense to me. Yeah. And then I should also mention that the, there are aging requirements for these wines, and Brunello have the longest ones. So they have to be aged in oak for a couple of years and have to be held in bottle for at least a few months before they're released. So even with all of that time before they're released, the, the 2018s being the current vintage now, they still have a reputation for long aging in your cellar. Vinny, I hope that our relationship ages as long as this wine of the year, but... <laughs> This is the end of our last appointment oh, for 2023. Don't say that. I want to talk about Super Tuscans, but we'll put a pin in that for another conversation. <laughs> and don't forget, Rob, a glass of Brunello a day will make you very happy. <laughs> I want to remind all of Dr. Vinny's fans that she writes a new advice column every single week, and you can find all of those for free at winespectator.com. Happy holidays and a very happy new year to you, Dr. Oh, B. Thanks, Rob. Happy new year to you and to everyone else out there listening. So, Rob, thanks for that visit there with Dr. Vinny and all things Tuscany, especially in light of our wine of the year this year, the Argiano Brunello di Montalcino 2018, which we might have a bottle kicking around here that we can make Mitch jealous with. <laughs> well, thanks, James. That's it for this episode and this season of mm. Wine Spectator Straight Talk Podcast. If you like the show, give us a rating on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. And most of all, thank you for listening. 
James, care to give us one last sneak peek wine pick? In honor of our last episode of the year, Rob, I'm going to give you a highlight rather than a sneak peek. Oh, and boy. You know, I get I get pretty lucky through the course of the year to taste more than a few special bottles, usually older stuff. The one that leaps to mind to me from this past year was a 1969 Ridge Cabernet Sauvignon, which at the time was labeled just California, not Montebello. Our listeners probably oh, wow. know that, yep. that famous Cabernet, yep. uh, though it did come from the Montebello Vineyard. Um, and at age uh, 54, over dinner with friends, that wine was just uh, all about power and depth and definition and really an amazing experience to see a wine that old show that vibrantly and that energetically. And that is the one that's still singing in my head from 2023. That's a winery with a reputation for old bones. And I will note that they frequently bring a very well-aged bottle to the Wine Experience Grand Tasting. Yeah, they're arguably one of the first growths of California Cabernet in the Ridge. And that 69 cap was terrific. Great highlight. Yeah. Thanks, Rob, for all the work this year. And, and again, thanks to all of you for listening. For the last time in 2023, this is James Moldsworth signing off for Straight Talk with Wine Spectator. And please remember to always share when you drink the good stuff. Mm-hmm.